0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: Is venture capital's triumph undermining its success? Best-selling author Sebastian Malaby's latest book, The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Art of Disruption, gives some insight. Welcome to The Exchange, a podcast about the world of business brought to you by Breaking Views, the commentary service of Reuters. I'm Robert Searin, a columnist based out of New York. And today I'm interviewing Sebastian Malaby. He's the author of books like More Money Than God and The World's Banker. He's also a senior fellow for International Economics at the Council for Foreign Relations. His latest book is called The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Art of Disruption. It's a history on the rise of technology investing and the people that financed giants from Apple to Uber technologies when they were still unproven startups. We talk about the industry's success. How a flood of capital has empowered founders, the dangers of investors piling into late-stage companies that inflated valuations, and the surprising role venture capitalists played in the rise of Chinese tech giants like Alibaba. So, Sebastian, in your book, The Power Law, you trace the history of venture capital to basically the birth of modern computing. Uh, William Shockley had won a Nobel Prize for developing the transistor, and he set up a company to develop them. And he was a brilliant, but but difficult, and frankly unlikable man. So, um, tell tell us what happened next.
0: So, uh, some of the scientists that he'd employed, who were like him, brilliant, uh, he you know because he was a Nobel Prize winner, he could choose the best people around. Uh, they just got fed up with being patronized, belittled, and generally bullied by Shockley. So they wanted to quit as a team and be hired by somebody else, another company. And uh, in their search for a new employer, they wrote a letter to a broker on the East Coast called Arthur Rock, who arrived in California to see them with a radical idea. Don't join another company, set up your own company. And these seven scientists, seven at the time, they later became eight, and they were known as the eight traitors or the traitorous eight, were shocked by this notion that they could have their own company. I mean, this was the 1950s, the era of organization man, the era of the big corporation, nobody started their own company. And Arthur Rock pushed them into it, as several of them then later admitted. And that was sort of the birth of the startup culture in Silicon Valley, as well as the birth of venture capital on the West Coast.
1: I mean, how, how different is it than traditional merchant banking? Because, you know, is this really that much different than, you know, like an Italian merchant meeting, meeting a ship captain saying, hey, let's go to the East Indies and bring me back some spices and give me 40% or something? How, how is this different? And how, how how has it changed? You know, what, what has traditionally been merchant banking?
0: You're right to point to those antecedents, because of course, the idea of carried interest. Namely, you know, that's how venture capitalists and hedge fund people get paid. They, they take 20 percent of the upside on their fund investments and they call that carry. The term comes from those seafaring captains who carried goods back from the new world to Europe and they got to keep 20 percent of the carry, right, what they were carrying. So there are those antecedents uh, and, you know, capitalism has always involved risky enterprises and there's been risk capital and now we call it venture capital. But I think something fundamental changed when you started to get funds that were specifically raised sort of ex-ante to fund startups that might then be discovered by the fund managers. So rather than doing this on a case-by-case basis, you know, somebody comes along and says, hey, I've got a new idea for a business. You first of all raise the capital, and then you go out and sort of persuade engineers and technological people that they should leave their big companies and start new ones that. That changed the metabolism of Silicon Valley and, and gave rise to this kind of Cambrian explosion of, of, of creativity.
1: What were, the, what were the early terms like? I mean, it, from your book, they, were extro- they seem extraordinarily generous to the venture capital, at least to someone looking today, looking back at us and saying, oh, my goodness, that's like, you know, th- th- these terms are mouthwatering.
0: Yeah. So one thread in the whole history of venture capital is the way that entrepreneurs have done better over time, at the beginning, capital was scarce. You know, This whole idea of doing venture investing was brand new and capital being scarce was very expensive. And so the investors could demand 45% of the company. This was the 1960s terms offered by Arthur Rock. And in fact, that was more generous than what had been true in the 1950s. Then you move into the seventies and, and the capitalists were taking a third of the company at the series A stage, the, the startup stage. And then you move into the 90s, it's about 25%. And then in the 2000s, Facebook, when it raised uh, startup capital, only gave away one-eighth of the equity to the investors. So it's been a huge change over time.
1: And how has, how has this affected returns? You'd think normally that, you know, when it, the more, obviously, the, if the terms are more generous, you should end up with higher returns in the end of this. Have returns declined
0: significantly as a result of this? Uh, No. Uh, And the reason is that some of the new technologies, notably kind of networking based consumer internet products, but also services, software, enterprise software stuff, the ability to build that with rather little capital, because it's software, not hardware, means that the, the capitalists can put in less money and take a share in something that really grows exponentially. The big breakthrough here was eBay, which in the 1990s proved the power of these network effects upon network effects. And yeah, there were, um, first of all, sort of the ability to harness uh, the power of the internet, which was growing exponentially. And according to Metcalfe's law, which is a way of thinking about network value, um, the value of the network grows as a square of the number of people on it. So as the internet was growing, the value of stuff on it was, was growing as the square, in other words, exponentially. But then on top of that, with eBay, you had ownable network effects where one company built on top of the internet could sort of own the deal flow in a particular area like auctions. And then that became the template for all of these other marketplaces, whether it's you know, Uber or Open Table or, or what have you um and, and and so investing in that stuff it just it, it didn't take much capital it could grow extraordinarily quickly and so the returns could be just as big as they had been when the venture capitalists were taking a much bigger share of the equity
1: i guess i'm, try- I'm trying to understand that and as the w- there's basically a wall of money now in venture capital i mean i, I looked at figures and there's something like over four times the amount of dry powder today as there was or even more um, than 2000 and 2000 wasn't, you know, a hard time to raise money to invest in companies. And if you say also that the amount of capital needed is falling, I mean, how shouldn't that point to someday that returns will decline?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, one answer is that um, they are probably going to decline, especially in the sort of unicorn later stage deals, which are the ones that have become the most overheated. But another part of the answer is that my point earlier was the amount of capital needed to build one company went down. But the number of opportunities to build tech companies has gone up. So aggregate VC dollars are increasing, you know, partly because of bubble effects, but also because this venture startup ecosystem is spreading in three dimensions, right? It's spreading geographically to Asia, um, Europe, Latin America, even other cities uh, outside Silicon Valley, like Miami and Austin and Denver and so forth. That's the geographical spread. Then it's growing into new types of industries. So you have food tech, you know, impossible foods, these meat-free hamburgers and all sorts of other food innovations. You've got all kinds of climate tech, energy tech government tech to get around, you know, sort of streamline regulation. I mean, anything can be disrupted by software. So that's the second dimension of, of growth. And then you've got the expansion of the venture ecosystem along the life cycle of the company. Because it used to be the case that Amazon or companies like that would go public at a valuation of between 400 million, 500 million. And now, of course, you have these Deca unicorns that stay private and then, therefore in the hands of venture capitalists well beyond the 10 billion mark, right? So I, I think the the wall of money that you're looking at is chasing a vastly bigger opportunity set than was the case 20 years ago.
1: So as the industry has become larger, um, it's become diversified. I wonder if you could just talk about the different types of investors uh, we have now.
0: Yeah, so there used to be just venture capitalists and even that was new, but then it started to break down into different stages of investment. So you'd get angel investors, or seed investors who come in right at the beginning and rather informally write uh, sort of smallish checks can be less than a million dollars right Then you get the traditional series series A investors who who might be writing checks anywhere from three million, five million ten million, and then later on, this new phenomenon of growth investors who are writing one hundred million two hundred million three hundred million dollar checks, which is a phenomenon that one could trace to. 1996, when Masayoshi Son of SoftBank first showed up in Silicon Valley and pretty much forced $100 million down the throats of Yahoo. They didn't want to take it at first, Uh, but by threatening to uh, give the money to Yahoo's rivals, if Yahoo didn't take it, uh, Masayoshi Son, you know, did a kind of Don Corleone offer, you know, this is an offer you can't refuse. And that was the first sign of this. And then later on, there were other inflection points where growth equity became part of the scenery. So now you have this this separation of VC into different stages. And there's a bit of separation also into vertical specialties. It used to be that VCs kind of did anything technological. And then they started to specialize in particular types of tech field because they then understood it better. They had deeper networks in that space. Um, So that's a couple of ways in which VC has altered.
1: Um, who adds value? Um, you know I, I, I can see how you know an angel investor, they go to a company and, and you know they're the ones that provide the initial funding and you can see why that'd be very valuable because someone can't get the funding somewhere else. But then you have a firm, you know like you get the you know some of the hedge funds, they just pile a huge amount of money very late in the firm, and that's not that doesn't really quite seem like venture capital. It's more like almost um, you know, it's an IPO by a different form. How do you how do you view it as who adds who adds worth to these companies?
0: Yeah, I do sympathise with what you just said. I do think that uh, the late stage investors like Tiger Global, the ex hedge fund, who then did a crossover, and this crossover term has become part of the the, the jargon. It's not clear that they add value, and it, it, they, what they're doing is they're offering an alternative to an IPO, as you said, and to the founder of the company that's super attractive because you don't have to do a quarterly earnings call. And these growth stage investors are often willing to write enormous checks and not even go on the board of the company and indeed promise to always vote their shares in support of the CEO. And I think that creates a governance failure because traditionally speaking, companies are either disciplined, by early stage venture investors who are very involved, they're on the board and they have proper voting rights and they can theoretically fire the CEO or the founder and sometimes do. That's real discipline. Or you go and do an IPO, in which case there are hedge funds that might short your stock or activist investors who might buy up your stock and then force change. There's real discipline there. And I think this this mid area of growth equity Fails to discipline and oversee and check and balance founder CEOs, and I think that's bad.
1: The other thing is that term. I mean, there's another effect of capital I've seen is that early stage valuations have shot tremendously, and that's partly because I remember talking to um, I can't name their name, but a long time ago, they they just looked at all these early stage internet companies and said, you know, they're systematically undervalued. I'm just going to buy them all um I'm not going to do any due diligence basically I'm just going to invest all this money in them because the economics are so favorable and if I lose a bunch of money it doesn't matter I mean is that how is that different than traditional venture capitalists is is that you know is that just a smart thing to do just to say hey look the economics suggest we just put money in all these things or is it do you think it's you know it could be done better
0: well, it's different from traditional venture capital because traditional venture capital definitely involves being hands on. It, 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 you know, you, you go on the board and you really shape the startup and you help it. And when the startup wants to, you know, hire a team of engineers, but it's a startup, right? So it has no brand or even much survival likelihood. Most startups do fail. It takes the venture capitalist to do the hiring on behalf of the startup often. And, you know, the startup founder is heads down, building the details of the nitty gritty of the company. And the venture investor knows the map and the territory, knows how this little startup could fit into a broader emerging tech ecosystem, which protocols for which technologies are going to dominate. So I think they really do add value. And and this growth thing of just, you know, building a kind of index fund of tech is is fundamentally a different thing. Now, is it smart? That's the other part of your question. Well, it's smart, perhaps from an investing standpoint, you might capture a lot of profit. So long as tech is doing well, and in a secular bull market in tech, which is what we've basically had since the NASDAQ crashed in 2000, 2001, you know, harvesting beta is a very profitable strategy. And that's why Tiger Global um, has gone from zero, which is what it was at the start of this period, right? A tiny little hedge fund that only began to do Private investments around two thousand three into this, you know, forty billion plus behemoth because it's harvesting tech beta very efficiently. If the market were to crash, that becomes a painful strategy to be in.
1: How much? um, One of the points you make is is you come down on the side of skill versus luck, and why why do you think that is? I mean, why? I could I I've looked at various studies saying, for example, that. There's persistence in returns. In other words, top tier, top tier VC funds tend to do well, and you can look at that two ways. You can say, okay, they do well because they get the best best the best deal flow. You know, if I'm a startup company, I'm going to want to go to I don't know Andreessen Harvard's I'm not going to want to go to some no no name down the street. But you you view it as a skill. So make the argument. Why do you think it's skill versus luck?
0: Yeah, I mean, at the beginning of my research, I took this path dependency story very seriously and I was quite open to the idea that what's going on is that you know, if you have 20 VC shops that start in year one, you know, one or two of them just by the law of probability are gonna have a home run investment in the first year or two. And then they'll get a hot hand, they'll have that you know, halo effect and, and, and then just path dependency means that they stay at the top. So that's a plausible hypothesis uh, about venture. But as I did the research over, over multiple years, I, I, I decided that that was wrong. And partly I decided it was wrong because actually path dependency is not immutable. And um, there are companies like Kleiner Perkins, which in 2001, if you looked at the Forbes Midas list, the number one investor was from Kleiner Perkins and the number three investor was from Kleiner Perkins. But then if you look 20 years later, there were no Kleiner Perkins people in the top 50. And there was only one in the top 100. So they went, you know, they did a dramatic fall from grace. And in fact, I've got a table in my book which shows the dominant venture partnerships by decade or by time period. And there is quite a bit of churn. So path dependency is not immutable. And indeed, the best academic literature I've looked at on the power of this effect suggests that there is some, you know, um, serial correlation in in returns. But it's not that strong. So if you do one IPO, it increases the chance of the next company you fund having an IPO a little bit, one point six percentage points. It's not huge. So if there is, you know, limited path dependency, and then you see a partnership like Sequoia being at the top of the league tables consistently, unlike others like Kane Perkins which fall out, you begin to think it might be skill. And then if you actually spend time inside these venture shops, as I did for for a long time doing you know, hundreds of interviews, many of which took you know, two or three hours each, you, know, you you begin to see the specific stories about how they do it that really makes sense. And it begins to feel like skill. It, it took me a while to get there because the initial stories are often sort of about you know, cute serendipity, investor meets so-and-so, entrepreneur, and they click somehow for some random reason and they do, you know, they do the deal. It, it just feels a bit too pat. But but when you understand that Sequoia incorporated decision science into its Monday partners' meetings, to try to correct for things like anchoring or correct for um, you know loss aversion in the way they decided what to invest in and how much. When you look at the way they systematically build their network in Silicon Valley by recruiting scouts who are going to make small investments with Sequoia Capital but then that puts them on Sequoia's radar screen. When you see the uh, resources that go into hiring sort of the best go to market strategist um, in SaaS software, um, so that you have him in your partnership and he can advise the portfolio companies that you invest in. I mean, this is more than just luck. Uh, there are clear stories of skill uh, in, in, in the stories that I tell about these venture capitalists.
1: And how? Would, how do shakeouts affect the industry? I'm just thinking of that because you're you're talking about luck versus skill and, you know, the, the role of um, harvesting beta. And, you know, it's been a rough end of the year and a rough start to the year for a lot of tech companies. The, you know, the market's starting to think, well, actually, maybe we want cash flow today, not promises tomorrow. So um, if you could kind of talk us through, you know, like how you see this shaking out, I'd, I'd be very interested.
0: I think the shakeout is going to be painful, as I was suggesting earlier to the growth equity players, because they are both the ones where the valuations were bid up the most dramatically. They're the ones also where the participation of non-traditional tech investors, people who are more venture tourists, not venture capitalists was most pronounced. So if you look at you know, the extreme cases, Theranos, the blood testing company, the money came from you know the Walton family of Walmart fame. It came from you know Rupert Murdoch. These are not tech investors, right? So there's just a huge volume of money that went in there. Much of it was you know not particularly skilled at tech investing, and also when you invest late stage, you're close to the assumed exit, and so it matters more whether the exit price changes. If you do early stage, you're, you're not really thinking about the exit until like seven years, eight years down the track. So by then, who knows what the market valuation will be and who knows what anything will be, right? You're just trying to build a good technology that customers want, and you're investing at such a low valuation that frankly, you know, <laughs> what the stock market does doesn't matter. So I think the answer to your question is, shakeouts do matter. They matter, especially for growth investors. They don't matter quite so much for early stage.
1: Okay. Um, did anything really surprise you from your, um, I mean, you, you said earlier, you know, you, were, you changed your mind a bit about the idea of luck versus uh, skill versus luck. Anything else that really surprised you?
0: The thing that really blew me away was when I went to China. I had researched sort of almost kind of before committing to do this book. And, and this is partly what made me do the book. I had researched the role of Silicon Valley's, you know, of venture capital in Silicon Valley's origins. And as I said to you before, you know, the story of, you know, the traitors leaving um, Shockley Semiconductor and setting up Fairchild and then later Intel. That story is much more driven by the investor Arthur Rock than by the entrepreneurs, at least versus the kind of traditional classic story of how venture of how Silicon Valley's history is told. So I, I knew there was a sort of slightly contrarian corrective that needed to be written about the Valley's origins and that venture had been more important than people recognized. What I didn't realize was that China is the same. China, if one reads Kai-Fu Li or other people who write about tech in China, um, is quite largely a story of government-directed capitalism, right? That, the government is really keen on artificial intelligence, really keen on building a semiconductor industry. You know, it's, it's sort of putting a lot of money into this. It's backing venture capital and making the, you know, the conditions right for it. But actually, <laughs> it's nonsense. <laughs> I mean, you go and look at the early story of the development of China's digital economy. You look at Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent. You look at Sina, Sohu, Neti, Ctrip, you name it. All of these companies were being ignored by the government that didn't care about consumer internet. And all of these companies were getting capital from American venture capitalists who brought in the Silicon Valley playbook with American lawyers. And the aspiration was to go public on the NASDAQ. There was dispute settlement under New York law. There were sometimes board meetings in Silicon Valley. The whole playbook was Silicon Valley, including use of employee stock options. Now, just just pause here a second, because in China in the late 90s, when Alibaba and Tencent got started, equity was a new idea, right? Shenzhen and uh, and Shanghai had started stock markets only in 1990. Equity options were unheard of. You couldn't translate this into Chinese at the time. But the venture capitalists from Silicon Valley showed up and they Created the ability to use equity options by using this Cayman Island parent structure, and I really believe that Alibaba wouldn't have happened without that because Alibaba grew and became a world class company on the basis of world class employees. Who were these world class people? Well, Jack Ma hired Joe Tsai, um, who was earning seven hundred thousand dollars or something, and took a sixty, uh, you know, six hundred dollar a year salary because the equity options were so generous. Then he hired John Wu, who was the lead technologist at Yahoo in Silicon Valley, and he attracted him with equity options. And then he told Wu, you can build an entire engineering team in Silicon Valley to work for Alibaba, and we'll pay them with Alibaba options. (laughs) So the growth of this famous Chinese digital economy was intimately connected with American-style venture capital. Showing, I think, that it's the secret source behind tech clusters.
1: Sebastian, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us. That was fascinating. And uh, I'm sure readers will love your book. Thank you for a great conversation. I enjoyed it. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Taslik in London. Subscribe to The Exchange in our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Cast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out every day at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews.